If you haven't already, take your Bibles and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I've been kind of waiting for this one. Now we come to what I call a true mountain peak in Scripture. Of course, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is, is profitable. But put it this way, if I'm on my deathbed, please don't read to me from 1 Chronicles chapter 6 and give me a list of names. Read me something like 1 Corinthians 15 or Romans 8 or something like that. Something that will lift my spirits. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Paul writes, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I also labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So there's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, as we begin this great chapter that talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, its importance, its central focus in our faith. How if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have a gospel, if you don't have gospel, you don't have faith. If you don't have faith, then, then you are, as Paul will say later on, the most pitiable of people because you might as well have, you've, you've missed out on life then. That's kind of the argument that he will make later on. Um, but just a, a recap of where we are. This is, of course, 1 Corinthians, Paul's first letter to this church. And uh, this letter can be broken down into two major sections. A report that Paul responds to that was delivered to him from someone named Chloe, or someone from Chloe's household in the city, and then a list of questions that Paul seems to be addressing uh, that the Corinthians had sent him. So those two parts make this letter. He, he kind of combines it in one response. And it, we're in the second part as he's answering these questions, and oftentimes you see these issues uh, introduced by the phrase, now concerning like you saw it in chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts. And you'll see it again in chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints. But this one he doesn't introduce in this particular manner. And um, I don't know if we need to take anything seriously about that, but the point Paul is trying to uh, address here in in this section is a confusion that the church had over the resurrection. You see it in verse 12, which we'll look at, Lord willing, 
next week, uh, where he says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And then you see it again in verse 35. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? So there's some confusion in the church regarding the resurrection. What seems to be the case, what most commentators will, will agree on, is that the church in Corinth seemed to be okay believing in the resurrection of Jesus. What they had a problem with was the resurrection of believers. They didn't think that believers were raised from the dead. We say, well, we'll stipulate that Christ was raised from the dead, but we, we have an issue with dead believers being raised from the dead. And part of this is because they're still kind of, in a way, uh, tethered or uh, connected to their old pagan philosophy. And in Greco-Roman philosophy, uh, I've mentioned this before, their, their, their belief was that anything associated with the material, anything associated with the body was considered to be evil. So your greatest goal in life is to be rid of the body, so now you are free to be the you that you are always meant to be. So to tell the Corinthians that they themselves would be resurrected, in their mind still kind of being connected to their pagan way of thinking, they're thinking, well, that seems like a step backwards for me. You know, why would I want to get back in this body? So they like, so they, you know, they, they, some of them thought that there was no resurrection of the dead for general, for believers. And they were confused. Well, what, what, okay, if, if there is a resurrection for believers, what kind of body are we talking about? And Paul will address those questions in coming weeks as we look through this chapter. But what he's going to do here in these first 11 verses is he's going to, again, like he did for spiritual gifts, he's going to lay a foundation for them. And that foundation is that the gospel is of central importance and the central fact of the gospel is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is central to our faith. If you take that away, we have no faith. Okay? If you take away the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no faith. And then he's going to go on to argue, and he's going to say, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then we too will be raised from the dead. And he's going to build his argument from there. But he's going to lay the foundation by talking about the centrality and the importance of the gospel. Hence the phrase and hence the title of first importance. In fact, uh, you drive that from verse 3 where Paul says, first of all, that which I, I delivered to you, first of all, or ESV says, of first importance. Other translations say the most important thing. So I want to talk a little bit about the importance of the gospel, okay? The importance of the gospel. Again, it is the, it is the heartbeat of the Christian faith. As I said earlier, if you have no gospel, we have no faith. There's, there's just no other way to put it. If you remove the gospel from, from the Christian church, then what, what are we doing, right? What are we doing if we're not talking about the gospel? if we're not pro proclaiming the good news, if we're not declaring the good news, if we're not grounding our faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, then if, if you take that away, then there's nothing special about the church. We might as well board up the doors, sell the building, and do something else on Sunday mornings. Because without the gospel, there is nothing at all that... Th this, is, this is a vain activity without the gospel. And the importance of the gospel 
is that it's the message that changes lives, right? It is the message that changes lives. It is the message of this dying and rising Savior that takes dead sinners and makes them living believers, okay? It is, this, it is what our, our teaching ought to focus on. It is what our preaching ought to focus on. The gospel is necessary for unbelievers to bring them to faith. The gospel is necessary for believers to ground them in their faith, to re-energize them in their faith. We ought to be always preaching the gospel. Paul talks about that in chapter 2 of this book when we looked at it earlier. Where in chapter 2 he says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's focus when he came to Corinth was to proclaim the gospel message. He didn't want to come with flowery words. He didn't want to come with the wisdom of the world. He didn't want to come with any other message. Because any other message isn't going to save you. All right? The, the, the message of the green movement isn't going to save you. Okay? You know, uh, go to electric cars and put up your windmills and put your solar panels on. That's not going to change your life. Right? That's not going to take you from darkness into light. Right? Or the, or the message of social justice. Or any of these other messages. None of these messages are going to change your life. None of these other messages are going to take dead sinners and make them living believers in Jesus Christ. The centrality of the gospel. In fact, in, Mark, in Mark's version of the uh, Great Commission in chapter 16, where he tells them to go forth, in Mark 16, in verse 15 of chapter 16, these are Jesus' last words recorded in Mark to his disciples, and he gives them the Great Commission. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That is what the, the whole work of missions is to be. The church goes forth into all the world and proclaims the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is central to our message. It is central to our faith. It is central to our Christian living because you, you think about all the commands in Scripture, right? You look at all of Paul's letters. Paul's letters, oftentimes he talks about some doctrine and then he goes on to, okay, this is how you should now live. And we look at that. It's like, okay, so I'm saved by the gospel, but now I've got to work on this, my sanctification. I've got to do these things in order to be approved by God. And then you then you need to be reminded of the gospel because that's not how sanctification works. All right, sanctification isn't us gritting our teeth, turning our knuckles white, and trying to you know, uh, you know, force our way through this Christian life. Sanctification is also resting on the gospel foundation. It is trusting in Christ. It is walking by faith. That if you, if you recognize that you've been saved by grace through faith, then that will bear fruit in your lives. It, the gospel, as Jesus will say, he says, my, my burden is not heavy. My burden is easy. Why? Because I've removed the burden of the law from you by taking the punishment of the law upon myself. Now you are free. 
Free what? Free to live in the way that, 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 that Christ has said we should live. Free to live in a way that shows love toward our neighbors. Free to live in a way that shows love toward God. So we need the gospel even as believers. So as we go into this passage here, again, like I said, verses 1 through 11 are foundational. And as I, you know, to come up with a theme for this, I just said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Okay, right? You've heard that before, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is the gospel. When we lose that focus... Then we go astray. That's when you start going off on weird paths. If, if you don't keep the main thing the main thing, then you start making other things the main thing instead of the main thing, which should be the main thing. If you follow that, then you're doing better than I'm doing <laughs> right now. But anyway, let's look at our passage here. Uh, three points. You've got the gospel declared, the gospel delivered, and the gospel demonstrated. So gospel delivered in verses 1 through 2. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul here begins this monumental chapter on the resurrection by speaking of the importance of the gospel. At its root, the gospel, the word euangelion, just means good news. It is a good message. The gospel is the good news of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we will see in the next section when he defines what the gospel is, at least at its most basic units. But Paul begins here by saying that this gospel message is the one that I have declared to you. It is the message I have made known to you. It is the message which I proclaimed to you. So he is talking to Christians here, right? Brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which then you also received. So Paul declared the message. The Corinthians received the message by believing in it, placing their trust in it. And now he says, so that message I, I declare to you, I preach to you, you received, and in which you stand. So again, the gospel is first and foremost a declaration of good news. And what is the good news, as we'll see in a moment? That Christ died for your sins. Right? You don't have to pay the penalty for your sins. Why? Because Christ paid for them. If that is not good news, then you need to know what the bad news is, which is you are under the judgment of God for your sins. And the good news is that Jesus pays that debt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, going way back to the beginning, in verse 23 of chapter 1, Paul begins here. This is, on the, of course, the section on divisions. But he talks about how the gospel is what unites the church. He says in verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Well, let me go back to verse 22. Jews request a sign. Greeks seek after wisdom. All right, so the Jews are always looking for signs, and the Greeks are always looking for the, new, the next new novel philosophy. 
But Paul says, but we proclaim, we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you remember when we went through that, he talks about how the wisdom of God is wiser than, is, is, you know, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. We looked at chapter 2 earlier. Uh, think of Galatians chapter 1, verse, verses uh, 6 through 12. Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12, where Paul writes to the Galatian churches there, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man nor as I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this message that Paul delivered to the Corinthian church, it's the same message he delivered to the Galatian churches, to the Ephesian churches, to the Philippian church. All these churches, it's the same message. And it's not something Paul made up on his own. It was something that he received, as he says here, by or through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And there is only one gospel. There are not other gospels. Anything else called a gospel is a false gospel, as Paul says here. So it's a declaration of good news, first and foremost. So as we said, the gospel that, they, that Paul preached, the Corinthians received. And they also stand in it. In other words, they are established by it. They are set in it. The gospel isn't just received. It, isn't something, it is also something believers must stand in. The Gospels for the beginning of the Christian life. The Gospels for the middle of the Christian life. The Gospels for the end of the Christian life. The Gospel which was declared to them is also that by which they were saved or delivered. Uh, think of what Paul says in Romans 1 where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. Why? For it is the power of of God unto salvation. So this message that Paul declared was received. They stand in it and they are saved by it. But they have to hold fast to that preached word unless they believed in vain. Now there's a little bit of interpretive differences here on how they interpret that phrase unless you believed in vain. Something it can mean that Perhaps their faith was not genuine. In other words, you're, all these things, you do, if you don't receive it, you're not saved by it, you're not holding fast to it because you've believed it in vain. Or as Paul will say later on, 
perhaps he's going to make this argument that if the gospel is not true, then your belief is in vain or empty. In other words, no gospel, no faith. So hold fast to the belief against attacks toward the gospel too. And that's something we should do, right? I mean, when the gospel is attacked, we need to defend it, right? Because we need to hold fast in it. We need to defend it against attacks. We need to, you know, and, and the gospel is always under attack. The gospel is always under attack by unbelievers. What's that? Yeah, even by some professed believers too, for sure. But the, the gospel is a declaration of good news that needs to be received, believed, and held fast to. It is the gospel that saves. It is the gospel in which we stand. Now Paul looks in verses 3 through 8 about the gospel delivered. So this declaration of the good news, Paul now is going to talk about what is this gospel that he delivered. Well, he says here that it is of first importance. It is of first importance, or first of all. The word there in the Greek, protos, first or chief. Uh, ESV has first importance. Uh, Christian Standard Bible has the most important thing. And as I mentioned earlier, if the gospel is not being delivered in the church, then what are we doing? What are, what, seriously, what are we doing if we're not proclaiming the gospel in our churches? Right? I mean, there's so many churches out there that are preaching nice messages of, of you know, being nice to your neighbor. Or, you know, if, if you go to church and you hear a message on, hey, this week we're going to talk about five tips to help, you know, strengthen your marriage. Or, you know, five tips to help you raise your kids. Or, or how to be successful in life. I mean, these are not bad things. They just don't belong in the church, okay? They don't belong in the church. The only thing we need to be proclaiming here is the gospel, okay? Now, it doesn't mean it's the same message each week, right? But from every passage of the Bible, we can proclaim the gospel. We can ground it and root it in the message of Jesus Christ. Because everything Jesus will say at the end of Luke's gospel, when he's walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he tells them, from all the Old Testament scriptures, how they all pointed to him. So everything in the, in, the, in the whole scriptures either points to Christ, is about Christ, or explains what Christ has done. And if that's not the message we are proclaiming, then we are wasting our time. I'm seriously. We might as well, I mean, I could sleep in on Sundays. I can watch the entire slate of NFL games on Sundays. Well, you know, we could do all kinds of things. We can have picnics. We can go to the Rotary Club or whatever. But if we're not proclaiming the gospel, we might as well shut down our doors because we are not doing anything that would appeal to the broader world any other for any otherwise, right? So it is the first importance. It is the most important thing. And what is that gospel? What is that gospel? Well, let's look at verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you, of first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, He was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, 
Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So what is the gospel? Well, first, the gospel is that Christ uh, died for our sins according to the scriptures. So let's, we're going to look at a few passages here. Matthew 26, verse 8. Sorry, 28, verse 28. Did I say verse 8? I meant verse 28. <laughs> Matthew 26, verse 28. This is the institution of the Lord's Supper in Matthew's Gospel. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Verse 28. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So as Jesus institutes the Last Supper, he tells them that these symbols that we are doing, the eating of the breaking of the bread, the drinking of the wine, are for the remission of sins to establish a new covenant. Luke, uh, we already looked at, I already mentioned this, but in Luke 24, Jesus talks to the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus and tells them that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And, and, and the context, of course, is it is after the, the crucifixion. And these disciples are, it's the first day of the week, and they're despondent. Why? Because their Lord and Master had died on the cross and was buried, and they thought that he was going to be the King of Israel. And then here's Jesus is, appears to them, unbeknownst to them, and is walking. And he's like, what's wrong? And he's like, like, well, you know, don't you know what's going on? Are you the only person who doesn't know what's going on here? And they tell him what happened, and Jesus then reveals to them from the Scriptures that all these things had to be. That Jesus, that the Messiah had to die for sins. Romans 3 has a great passage on this too. After Paul gives the bad news of how we are condemned by our sins, in Romans 3, starting in verse 21, you get, one of, you get two of my favorite words in all of the Bible, right? <laughs> but now. <laughs> I, I love but now in the Bible, okay? Because it, it marks a great transition. I'm telling you all this bad news, but now here comes the good news. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Christ died for our sins. That word propitiation, it's a big fancy $50 theological word that means to appease the wrath of someone, right? When Christ died, there's two fancy words. There's propitiation and then there's expiation, okay? And that's what you see on the Day of Atonement. You have two, two goats, right? Two goats are presented for sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. One, the priest places his hands on the goat and in a symbolic transference of all the sins of the people, and that goat is sent away. 
So that's expiation. Our sins are removed from us. Right? As Psalm 103 says, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, and the Lord remembers them no more. Propitiation is what the other poor goat has to do. Okay? The other poor goat is slaughtered, and his blood is splattered over the mercy seat as a way of atoning for the sin. So you remove the guilt and you atone for the wrath. So when Paul says here that Jesus was set forth as a propitiation, he was set forth as that offering to bear the wrath of God and to turn away God's wrath from us. Uh, you don't need to turn to this passage, but 2 Corinthians 5.21, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, in which Paul says that God made Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin so that we can be the righteousness of God in him. Christ died, to, uh, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, when Paul says according to the scriptures, of course, he's referring to the Old Testament. They don't have the New Testament yet. And you're like, well, you just read to us from a bunch of New Testament passages, so can you show us in the Old Testament? It's like, yes, I can. Because we know in Genesis 3.15, right, you've got the promise of the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. So right after Adam had failed in his task before God, God says, he gives the promise of the gospel right at the very beginning and says that there will, be, there will come one, there will come a seed from the woman who will crush the serpent. He will do, Adam, what you failed to do. You should have crushed the serpent. You failed in your task. This seed of the woman will come and succeed where you failed. He will crush the head of the serpent. And then later on, you, you notice then that Adam and Eve were no longer naked. They were clothed, right? Those, those animal skins came from somewhere. Animal skins come from animals, right? They come from animals that have been slain. So you have already set up at the very beginning this idea of substitutionary atonement. Psalm 22 is another great one in which uh, the psalmist talks about how he is forsaken by God. And, and of course you have uh, Isaiah 53 in which we find out that the suffering servant was beaten. That his, by his stripes we are healed. He was beaten for our iniquities. So even in the Old Testament you have uh, the, this, this idea that Christ died for our sins. In fact, it was Isaiah 53 that, that converted the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, right? The Ethiopian eunuch is sitting there. He's got the scriptures, and he's reading Isaiah 53. Of course, it's not marked Isaiah 53. He's just reading what would be Isaiah 53. And all of a sudden, Philip shows up, and Philip's like, what are you reading? Well, I'm reading the scroll here about this this, this, this servant that comes and, and, he, and, he's, and he's slain for iniquities. And then Philip explains the meaning of it. And it converts the Ethiopian eunuch right then and there on the spot. Then the guy is baptized and he becomes a believer. Well, he becomes a believer, then he's baptized. Put it in the proper order. But. So we have there, according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. That's the first part of the gospel. Second, he was buried that means he died, right? The, you, you don't bury, well, I guess you could bury someone who's alive if you're cruel, but you only bury dead people, okay? You bury dead people. And then he rose again according to the scriptures. So that's the second part of the gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ was buried and rose again according to the scriptures. Psalm 16, 
uh, talks about how uh, David says that, uh, that you will not let uh, your servant's soul see corruption. Uh, Jonah, right? Jonah, we learn that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. And these passages from the Old Testament are used in the New Testament to talk about this idea that Jesus died and rose again. Matthew 12. Matthew 12, Jesus refers to Jonah. In Matthew 12, verse 40, Matthew 12, Jesus is contending with uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in verse 38, this is near the end of that, that chapter where there's a lot of contention. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. So all this time, Jesus has been showing signs, right? He's been showing signs. It's not like this is the first time that Jesus is going to show a sign. So they, you know, they, they ask him for a sign. Of course, he says, what, an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. So in other words, look, you've had signs. You refused to believe the signs I gave you. Now you're asking for another one. I'm not going to give you any more signs because that is not my ministry to, to, to answer to your request, to kind of do little magic tricks for you to prove who I am. I'm going to give you one more sign. And what's the sign? The sign of Jonah. That's right, he says there in verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus, right, who breathed out the scriptures, who is the very word of God incarnate, describes to us that the sign, that what you see in Jonah was picturing Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. He would be in the ground three days. And in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, we'll see reference to Psalm 16. This is Peter's great sermon on Pentecost Sunday, starting in verse 25. So in Peter's sermon, now, you know, in Peter's sermon, he first goes through uh, Joel chapter 2, and then he goes through Psalm 16. In verse 25 of Acts chapter 2, we see here, For David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of joy in your presence. And then he explains, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, when David wrote that, when David wrote that psalm, he was not speaking of himself. Why? Because his tomb is right here. We can point to where David was buried. He died and was buried. We, can, we know where his, where his tomb is. Verse 30, Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, 
that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter, in trying to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, shows how David in Psalm 16 predicted this. So the, the red, that Jesus was buried and that he rose again on the third day was also according to the scriptures. Third, that the risen Christ was seen by many. Right, That's what Paul goes on in the rest of the passage there. He was buried and then he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and then he was seen by over 500, then James, and then by all the apostles. In other words, there was a plethora of eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. First to Peter, then to the twelve, then to apparently 500 at once, and then Paul says, many of whom are still with you. In other words, you can go and talk to them. You can go and confirm this with them. Some have fallen asleep. Then he says, to James, then by all the apostles, and finally, in verse 8, he says, also by me, as one born out of due time. Paul was the last person to see the risen Christ. And we know that because on the road to Damascus, Paul saw the resurrected Christ. It was the vision of the resurrected Christ that literally knocked him off of his donkey and converted him on the spot. And it's interesting, that phrase that Paul uses there, last of all, he was seen by me as by one born out of due time. That word uh, can be used to describe a miscarriage or an abortion, in fact. In other words, Paul is like, I'm not like the other apostles. The other apostles, they walked with Jesus. They talked with Jesus. They were taught by him. They ministered with him. I'm just some guy at the far end of that, that list that just had the grace of God bestowed upon me. So he calls himself as one born out of due time. I'm, I'm like a miscarriage. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like a premature baby in that sense. And the application for us here from this passage, this section at least, is that what Paul is demonstrating here is that the gospel, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical fact as attested by the fact that Jesus lived. We know he lived. We have his a record of his life, and we also know from extra-biblical sources that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, right? No one can survive the crucifixion and the cross like he did, and that he rose again. What's the evidence of that he rose again? Well, the empty tomb is one evidence, right? That tomb was empty on that Easter morning 2,000 years ago. In fact, the story was given, not that the tomb wasn't empty. What, what did, in Matthew's Gospel, when the the soldiers came back and told what happened. The, the, the Pharisees say, well, just say the disciples stole his body. That was the story they wanted to put forth. Not that he rose from the dead. Give the story that the disciples stole the body. So it's a real historical fact. Jesus lived, he died, he rose. His resurrection was witnessed by many. And that is the message that Paul delivers. That is the good news. Jesus died for your sins. Your sins have been paid for. And God accepted that sacrifice by raising him from the dead. 
It is a real historical fact, the message that we proclaim to you. And finally, and I've got to move rapidly now. The gospel demonstrated, verses 9 through 11, for I am the least of the apostles. So after saying he was born out of due time, I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So Paul considered himself the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. But it's interesting how the least of the apostles here is preaching a message that is of first importance, right? Which goes to show that you don't have to be someone special to preach the gospel. The least of among us can still proclaim the message of first importance. But we know that Paul often looked, you know, I don't know if he was plagued by it or not, I can't read his mind, but I do know that Paul often talked about how he was the least, right? He says it again in Ephesians 3. In, in 1 Timothy uh, 1, he calls himself the, the chief of sinners, right? Because he persecuted the church. He, he executed believers, right? He, he, he gave approval of their execution. When Paul was boasting of his resume in Philippians 3, he says, my zeal, you want to measure my zeal? My zeal is measured by the fact that I was a persecutor of the church. That is how zealous I was in my pharisaical faith. And then though Paul considered himself least and not worthy, he recognized that by God's grace he is what he is, right? That's not like the Popeye, I am what I am and that's all that I am. You know? <laughs> no, Paul recognized he's not, he's not going to focus on his past, right? I mean, we could look at our past and... and, and and see failure, and see sin, gross sin, whatever, and we can, that can paralyze us. But Paul's like, look, hey, by God's grace, I am what I am. Right? I was a, a persecutor of the church, but God took me and made me an evangelist for the church. And God can take the worst of sinners and make them the greatest of evangelists, right? Nothing is beyond God's ability here. And that's the gospel demonstrated, how the gospel can take the worst of sinners, and turn them into the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. He's not lingering on the past, but he labors. That word there, laboring, uh, in Greek it means like hard labor, toiling. Right? Paul, again, recognized his past, so when God called him into, into gospel ministry, he labored hard at it. Right? I mean, the whole book of Acts, at least the second half of the book of Acts, is one long uh, missionary account of how Paul labored in place to place to place. And if we had time, I would take you through some, some passages that talk about Paul's labors. Read 2 Corinthians, particularly chapter 11, and Paul will tell you what he went through as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he says, by the grace of God I am, but I am, and I labored more abundantly than they all. But he's, and then he goes on, but it's not me. It is the grace of God working in me that caused me to labor thus. And he says, therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. In other words, he doesn't, it doesn't matter whether it was Paul's labors or someone else's labors. And that's what you get in Corinth, right? You've got Paul labored there, Apollos labored there, Peter labored there, and they were all blessed by it. And Paul's like, look, it doesn't matter if it was me or Paulus or Cephas. They all labored here, and so we preached and so you believed. 
And gospel power here is demonstrated in how God took the most unworthy person of sinners and making them gospel heralds for his greater glory. So we'll stop here uh, for now. Lord willing, next week we'll look at verses 12 through 19. But just as a wrap-up here, Paul, again, is laying the foundation for this great chapter in which he's going to demonstrate that because Christ has been raised, we too have been raised or will be raised. And we'll be raised and we'll have glorious bodies, bodies not like the bodies we have now, but bodies that will be like Christ's own body. But he has to lay the foundation that is the gospel, that is the foundation of the Christian life. It is the message of first importance. It is the message by which we believe. It is the message in which we still stand and hold fast to.